Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. Good afternoon. This is Dean Finale of Politics and Life Science Radio. Thank you for joining us today. I am very excited to have as our guest today, Dr. Jeremy Levin, uh, Chairman and CEO of Ovid Therapeutics and the immediate past chairman of BIO, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. Uh, before we bring on Dr. Levin, let's see what's going on in the life science area. A uh, lot of news regarding COVID uh, as Seems to be the case every day. New information is coming in. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about boosters, whether we need boosters, whether the two-dose mRNA vaccines or the single-dose J&J vaccines that are authorized in the U.S., whether they provide adequate long-term protection against the vaccine, excuse me, the virus. Uh, these vaccines are very effective. Uh, certainly, the Delta variant has really changed the game, so to speak. We saw that light at the end of the tunnel, uh, March, April timeframe, but Delta's really uh, kind of reminded us that we're not through this yet. This is a global pandemic and, you know, we just need to get people vaccinated. Uh, Generally speaking, uh, you know, there's been this, I think the Biden administration's done a a relatively good job uh, overall, but the messaging recently has been a little mixed when it comes to the need for a booster. Originally, we heard boosters were necessary uh, for immunocompromised people. Uh, then we heard they would be available for everyone as of September 20th. We heard eight months, six months after full vaccination. So there's been a little bit of mixed messaging. But I think the main message that should be conveyed is that the vaccines are very effective, uh, even against the Delta variant, even without a booster shot. Certainly people uh, that have a immunocompromised uh, conditions and receive treatments that may uh, reduce their immune response or ability to generate an immune response are at higher risk. The FDA and CDC came out with data saying uh, they were almost 500 times more at risk than after, even after getting that full vaccination uh, than people, uh, healthy people that were fully vaccinated. So certainly there are people out there that may need a booster. Uh, We can also imagine, if you recall, back going way back to last year, we know people over 65, people uh, that had comorbidities were at the highest risk. Certainly, that's another area where we may see boosters as a necessity. Uh, But generally speaking, the science looks like, uh, at least for now, that for the general public, uh, the vaccination that they received from either the two-dose mRNA vaccines or the single-dose J&J vaccine uh, will provide adequate protection. 
Uh, you know, certainly if we, when we think about flu vaccines, we know we have to go back annually to get that vaccine. The immunity tends to wane after a period of time, typically around six to eight months with that vaccine, uh, as well as um, the possibility of different mutations uh, for flu. So there is precedent, obviously, for getting an annual vaccine shot. I don't think we're there yet in the U.S., but certainly that's on everyone's mind. Will this become an annual thing? Uh, but, you know, we're still waiting for data. And as we've you know, been saying on this show uh, from the beginning, let's focus only on the data. We can leave the politics out of it. Politics has really, uh, unfortunately, shaped a lot of the messaging and to America's detriment. Uh, another issue we've been talking about is the availability of an authorized vaccine for children. As we know, the only vaccine that's available uh, for 12-year-olds and up is the Pfizer mRNA vaccine. No vaccine is authorized in the United States or for children under 12. The, these companies are doing trials and tests uh, for vaccines in children even as young as six months, but certainly focusing on that uh, 5 to 11 age group, which is uh, of concern lately as children get back to school. So we'll see uh, how that plays out, but it looks like we're probably looking at sometime later this year, uh, end of fall, beginning of winter, before we actually have an authorized vaccine for children. So, you know, it's been really a shame to see these politicians, uh, you know, put children at risk by getting into these laws that are preventing schools to, from using masks. And we're seeing, you know, school boards really degrade into arguments and in some cases even fistfights just over, you know, wearing masks at school. At this point, you know, that message has to be from what it was in the beginning. You know, if you're not vaccinated, the protection that you need is afforded by a mask and social distancing. So it's been unfortunate, but hopefully, uh, you know, people and parents, you know, can recognize that, you know, wearing a mask is the really only protection that children have if they're back in the classroom. One of the uh, issues in the U.S. that we've seen, too, is this hesitancy to get the vaccine. Uh, it's been unfortunate as well. As I mentioned, this has become very po politicized. You know, when we look at the statistics, it's mainly white Republican men, uh, evangelicals, and re most recently it had been the black community that had been uh, most hesitant. Those three demographics had been the most hesitant to get the vaccine. We're seeing in the black community that that hesitancy is precipitously dropping, which is certainly good news. Uh, and, you know, we know from historical reasons that's in many instances, the main uh, reason for hesitancy aside from the quickness of how these were developed, uh, that historical reasons uh, in the black community of why they were hesitant. But when we look at white evangelicals, white males, Republican males there, it's, it's it seems mostly political. You know, we know, uh, in the previous administration, there had been some uh, politicization of this, to say the least. Uh, that has continued uh, to some extent with many Republican lawmakers. So unfortunately, this has been very politicized. The good news is even in those highest risk groups, we're seeing the hesitancy to get vaccinated drop. So people are coming around. It's most likely, unfortunately, uh, people are seeing their friends and family become infected and it's scaring them. Uh, we also know the Pfizer vaccine was recently fully approved by the FDA. Uh, so that's potentially uh, you know, reassuring people that 
proper protocols weren't safe in place. But when you think about this, you know, when we look at these vaccines, you know, over 5 billion doses have been administered. So we're really talking about uh, when we talk about side effects, when we talk about uh, adverse effects, very rare. We're, we do know that there are some issues with the vaccines, but again, these are very rare. The vaccines are highly effective. So we're very happy to see that people are becoming less hesitant to get the and less skeptical to get the vaccine. I'd like to bring on our guests now on Politics and Life Science Radio, uh, Dr. Jeremy Levin. Jeremy is the chairman and CEO, as I mentioned, of Ovid Therapeutics and the immediate past chairman of the Global Biotechnology Innovation Organization. Uh, he's been voted one of the 25 most influential people in the biopharmaceutical industry. And prior to leading Ovid, Dr. Levin served as president and CEO of Teva Pharmaceuticals, uh, the world's largest generic drug company. Dr. Levin, thank you so much for joining us today. Dean, what a pleasure it is to be with you, and what a great summary you've put on the table before this. Oh, thank you for that. So when, we, when you look at the, with your experience in working at Bio and uh, in the uh, Teva and Ovid in the pharma and biotech industry, how, how would you think, how has the pandemic positively or negatively affected R&D? Has it really slowed it down? Because, you know, a lot of people, I think, are becoming, you know, most people probably never heard of a phase one, phase two, phase three trial. I think people are becoming a lot more uh, in tune to what goes into development. They were forced to. Uh, but behind the scenes, the research and development, how has the pandemic had an effect on that? Dean, we're diving straight into the weeds here, but let me step back for one second and give your Please. audience a little bit of a, a picture of what we're really going to be talking about. Um, R&D for new vaccines actually started in the 1700s. And when smallpox was first inoculated, in fact, there's stories that it was in China in a thousand years before Christ. Remarkable. But over the years, people started to think about how you would develop vaccines. And we got into a real rhythm once we got smallpox nailed down and then polio and then a number of really great uh, 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 discoveries around measles, mumps, which pushed all of these diseases back. Now, all of them went through a process. They all, except for the very earliest, of course, all of the ones went through a process with companies and governments and regulatory agencies. And the, the basic way that we do it today and have done in the modern world essentially is to find a protein on one of on the virus or the bacteria, whatever it is you're going to develop a vaccine for, then to develop a way of having the body react to that, getting it into the body and having the body react to it. And that basically has a set of steps once you the steps are called phase one. You try and see if you can introduce this protein into the body and the body reacts to it and you've got those antibodies that will fight it, then you know you're onto a good track. Then you try a phase two. The phase two says what's the right dosage that you need to generate the optimum response. And then finally, you look at a large population and say phase three how do we actually now look at a large population, enough for us to say it's safe and effective, 
and then you present that to the FDA or the European regulatory authorities for approval. This is a tried and tested methodology, and it works. We've got great vaccines. We've pushed back all sorts of terrible diseases. Um, as you point out, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, political intervention has forgotten what has today is one of the greatest means of pushing back disease, and that's vaccination. But all of that having been said, you ask the question, what has the pandemic done to increase and change R&D? Well, I've described the program of what it means getting from that protein, identifying it in that virus or bacteria, all the way through to getting a vaccine out to. And it's pretty well oiled. What happened in 2019 was that we had a foundational understanding of these viruses and of viruses generally. It took about 40 years, actually. The biotech industry had been working on viruses. They'd gone through H1N1. They'd gone through a number of other viral infections across the nation. But they had in the refrigerator and in their databases some of the most important pieces of information. What were the proteins that might be important? As the pandemic washed over us and it became clear it was going to be catastrophic for the world, the biotech industry and the regulatory authorities rapidly took a look at what had been done in the past, compressed everything. They compressed it, but they did not stint in other words, they did not diminish the work to be done to test for safety. They basically eliminated duplication. They tried to ensure that they had everything running in parallel. But this was a rigorous and massive speed up of the process without loss of quality. This was a spectacular teamwork between the industry and the FDA, to speed not just the discovery of the protein, which were basically in the refrigerators, you could bring them out very quickly, but then quickly harnessing those to new types of technology like mRNA, getting those into the body and testing the responses. All of these required the companies focus utterly, spend billions of dollars, which they did, and that the FDA be shielded from political intervention saying that approval should be done before safety was assured, before we could demonstrate efficacy. And the result of this, as you saw, this massive compression without loss of quality, I want to emphasize that, without loss of quality, meant that by the end of last year, you saw something remarkable. What would normally take five to six to seven years, sometimes eight years, was compressed into less than a year. And you've, you've seen this done, by the way. You know that when you build an automobile by hand, it takes a year or two years. You know that when you put it on, a, uh, on an automated process, it can take two days. All you have to do is to line up the things that are required for that product, put them together in the right way, in a very new way. So what happened was exactly that. 
Everything was put together in a, in a fashion which was organized, thoughtful, and extraordinarily well-managed. Couldn't agree more. It was really extraordinary, even more so when you think of the fact that the, there was never an mRNA vaccine. So not only are we talking about developing a vaccine uh, through all the mechanisms that you mentioned so quickly and efficiently and in such a, a safe and effective manner, but also bringing forth a new type of vaccine, an mRNA vaccine. I wanted to get your impression of that. Do you look at mRNA or do you think mRNA vaccines uh, are kind of the future of vaccines? Or do you think uh, you know there are other technologies or the tried and true technologies that were developed in the past will still be the mainstay? Dean, I think for different types of diseases, you will have different types of vaccines. It's probable, we're not certain, it's probable that the mRNA vaccines will take over the classical viral disorders, such as flu, such as now COVID, not classical, but terribly current, uh, possibly other viruses that are coming into play. I suspect that those with experience in mRNA will endeavor, as they're already laying out their programs, to conquer these diseases by, cre by creating brand new vaccines using the mRNA. Now, it's got a lot of advantages, by the way. It's incredibly quick, as we've seen. It, doesn't it can be manufactured in very, very large quantities very quickly. So, for example, to go from a, to get an a mRNA vaccine for a new variant, you can discover what that vaccine should be and develop it very quickly in matters of weeks, not months or years. But that's all based on the experience we have. So in summary, I believe that mRNA will be the future for many, many disorders. But then there are others. For example, Lyme disease. Lyme disease, which affects 300,000 people in this country every year, devastating disease, actually, and it's one of the largest tick-borne diseases in the United States. The current vaccines for a human being were put aside back in the 1970s, uh, 1980s, sorry, and, uh, primarily because of false rumors about they were causing autism. They're absolutely not true. However, new much more potent and effective vaccines are on the, on the deck, but they're traditional and they will have an effect on that kind of a disorder. So there'll be a lag period of time when some disorders like Lyme disease will still be treated with these, uh, with the older type of vaccines, but which are very effective. Uh, the company there, by the way, is called Valnerva, who's been doing this for years, a very well-respected company. And then in addition to which, you have uh, other companies like GlaxoSmithKline, Sanofi, who have in their pipeline a number of traditional vaccines, as do Merck. But eventually, I think a lot of these will switch to mRNA. I agree with you. You know, when you think of mRNA, it's been studied for over 30 years. Uh, and, you know, I think this is really a, a renaissance that we're seeing in real time, potentially the future of medicine. But I want to switch gears a little and focus on, on your company, Ova Therapeutics, uh, which focuses on developing therapeutics for rare neurological diseases. Historically, pharmaceutical companies didn't 
really focus on rare diseases. I think it's really commendable that Ovid is. Uh, can you give us a little bit of perspective on, you know, what exactly is a rare disease? How many people does it affect generally? Is there a definition of it? Or is there a definition of basically just there's not a, a large population of people suffering from this? Absolutely. A very good comment. A rare disease is one that affects less than 100,000 people. Most of them are caused by inherited disorders. There are roughly 7,000 of these inherited disorders. They're defects in the genes of human beings. And amazingly, amazingly, there are over 30 million families in the United States which are affected by that. So if you think that each family has only one person affected by that disorder, and that means that that family itself is affected, these disorders affect, let's say, on average, four people per family. This, these rare diseases affect over 120 million people in America. Not all of them are sick, 30 million of them have the disorder. But four members of each family will be affected because some of these disorders, like cystic fibrosis, like um, fragile X, require immense care of each individual. Then they're very different types. Some of them, of course, tragically, the children die before they reach 10 years old. Others become crippled as they get older. Yet others who've got specifically this, what are called uh, inherited diseases of the brain, they often end up in long-term facilities for years. Examples of that are Angelman's syndrome, which is a disorder inherited spontaneously, Fragile X in young men, which causes immense inability to have an, you have an intellectual disability, you have behavioral disabilities, and eventually, much of these are looked after in long-term care. So the cost to the economy of this, well, first of all, the cost, the emotional cost, your beautiful child is born and then gets ill without knowing what's going on, leads to a journey that goes to a pediatrician and from the pediatrician often to a geneticist. And then you get the news that you have something that in the past you couldn't do much about but you would be then left with having to support the child through a very, very hard period, and which could be very many years or tragically, as I say, lead to their death. Well, I really want to commend you and the team at Ovid for focusing on rare diseases. You know, when you think about just the, the sheer number of people out there that are directly and indirectly affected by these diseases and the unmet need, it's really commendable that your company is focusing on these. So uh, tremendous honor to have you today, Dr. Levin. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Uh, grateful for Dr. Jeremy Levin for joining us today on Politics and Life Science Radio. Uh, Dr. Levin, one of the 25 most influential people in the biopharma industry, it was a pleasure having you and thank you uh, for joining us. Dean, it's a total pleasure, and thank you for what you're doing on COVID. I think it's incredibly important, the voice that you have and those of you, those who listen to you and understand what you're saying, will make the difference. 
Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences. 